We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to the darkened hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today's episode, I'll be talking about Al-Qaeda in Yemen and the USS bombing, the bombing of the USS Cole in October 12th of 2000. The connections between Al-Qaeda in Yemen to Muhammad Jamal Khalifa and to Osama bin Laden, all known to the U.S. intelligence services that start back in the early 1990s. And in 1996, during his move from Sudan to Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden had allegedly sent his brother-in-law, Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, to fund a militant group in Yemen that will later take credit for the 2000 USS Cole bombing. The group is known as the Islamic Army of Aden. And this group is apparently formed in 1996, but is not heard from until May of 1998, when it issues the first of a series of political statements. The group will kidnap 16 British tourists in December of that year, in which four of the tourists would be killed during a shootout with police. The remaining hostages are rescued. Later on, Yemeni authorities had evidence tying Khalifa to this group and to the 1993, 90, 1995 Bajinka plot, as well as other violent acts. Although Khalifa had denied all allegations, he has linked to terrorist groups. The former head of the CIA's counterterrorism center, Vincent Canestrato, would later claim that not only did Khalifa fund the Islamic Army of Aden, but that Khalid al-Madar, a future 9-11 hijacker who lives in Yemen, has ties to this group as well. Canestrato further noted that Khalifa went on to form the group after being deported from the United States in 1995, saying, quote, he should never have been allowed to leave U.S. custody, end quote. The group would later plays Osama bin Laden and uses a training camp reportedly established by him in southern Yemen. But the group is more clearly tied to another militant named 
Habu Amza al-Masri, who has no hands and one eye, a former Afghan war veteran living and preaching militarism or Salafism in London. By the summer of 1998, Ahmed Nasrallah, a veteran Al-Qaeda operative who had been in Yemen for several years, has decided to defect and turn himself over to the Yemeni government. He discloses the location of Al-Qaeda strongholds in Yemen and even gives away the location of Al-Qaeda's deputy leader, Dr. Ayman al-Swahari, in a southern Yemeni town. He also describes Al-Qaeda's weaponry, security, and violent plans for the future. And he even offers to spy on Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan or even on a militant Yemeni group led by one of its leaders, Zain al-Abedin al-Midar, who is a relative of future 9-11 hijacker Khalid al-Midar. Later in 1999, Zin will be caught and executed in Yemen for his kidnappings and killings for the group. However, two officials in the political security organization, which is the Yemeni's equivalent of the FBI, have radical militant ties and hand over Nasrallah to Al-Qaeda operatives. Uh, these operatives plan to kill him for betraying the group, but he escapes to Egypt before they could do so. And the Egyptian government later interrogates him for more than a year. However, it is not known what he told them before September 11, 2001, or what they might have passed on to the United States intelligence services and government. One of the two Yemeni officers helping al-Qaeda on this matter is Abdul Salam Ali Abdurrahman al-Hilla, who will later be recorded by Italian intelligence in 2000, apparently mentioning the upcoming September 11th planes operation attacks. After the August 1998 U.S. East Africa embassy bombings, Abd al-Rahim al-Nashri, an al-Qaeda associate, calls a number in Yemen to discuss attacking a U.S. warship. The U.S. authorities learned of this call no later than December 2000, although it is not clear how they do so. The number called by al-Nashri is not disclosed by the media, but some of al-Nashri's associates lived at an al-Qaeda communications hub in Sana'a, Yemen, which began to be monitored by U.S. authorities around this time. According to NSA officials, Al-Qaeda operatives are using a communications hub in Sana'a, Yemen to put everything together before the bombing of the USS Cole. The communications hub is run by Ahmed al-Hada, who U.S. officials will later describe as a prominent Al-Qaeda member who is believed to have been involved in the USS Cole bombing. The hub is monitored by U.S. intelligence from 1998 at least, and information gleaned from it is used to thwart a number of plots, allegedly. The U.S. monitors the house through bugs planted inside and through spy satellites to monitor people leaving and entering it. The hub is also used before the 1998 embassy bombings and will be used to communicate with the 9-11 hijackers 
before the attacks. When the FBI arrives in Yemen to investigate the bombing, it finds that telephone records show that suspects in the coal bombing had been in touch with suspects from the 1998 embassy bombings in Kenya. Calls between the hub and an al-Qaeda cell in Ireland seems to have a connection to the coal bombing, which are also intercepted during part of this period. It is unclear why the information does not allow the NSA to thwart that plot, despite the scope of the monitoring. Later, NSA Director Michael Hayden would later say that there was no intercepts the NSA could have exploited to stop the bombing. Later on, he would be quoted as saying, when the cold disaster took place, I had brought to my desk in, in this office, every stitch of NSA reporting that I could in any way be relating to this. And I went through the report by report, and I sent the letter out to our entire workforce, which was essentially that they performed well and to keep up the good work, end quote. However, according to CIA and FBI officials, the NSA were monitoring bin Laden's satellite phones going as far back as 1992 to 1998, when bin Laden discontinues use of satellite phones. This is how the NSA became aware of the Sama Yemen hub number, although the NSA has not shared this information with the FBI or the State Department. The CIA becomes aware of this because the CIA also has an, an analyst working with the NSA regarding Al-Qaeda monitoring operations. The analyst tells the CIA in which Michael Scheuer, the head of the Bin Laden issue station, codenamed Malik Station, the chief of operations, goes to the NSA's leading analyst, Barbara McNamara, and informs her to share information with CIA. She threatens him with litigation if they find out that the NSA publicly informs the NSA is beginning secret operations and signals intelligence regarding Yemen hub. Scheuer backs away. On August 22, 1998, Mohammed al-Ohali was questioned by local Kenyan law enforcement and the FBI in the aftermath of the U.S. Embassy bombings and discloses important information to them. When he has shown photographs of al-Qaeda operatives, one of the people he identifies is Abid al-Rahim al-Nashari, a cousin of another Nairobi bomber involved with the bombing of the U.S. Embassy. Al-Nashiri is an Al-Qaeda commander who helped Al-Ohali obtain a false passport in Yemen when Al-Ohali stayed at a safe house during April and May of 1998. It is unclear where the FBI obtained the photo of Al-Nashiri, although U.S. intelligence was previously informed of Al-Nashiri's involvement in a plot to smuggle anti-tank missiles into Saudi Arabia in 1997, Al Alhali gives the FBI a number he called immediately after the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. But unknown to the FBI, 
are the NSA CIA operations running there two years prior? The CIA is the primary organization for gathering foreign intelligence, has jurisdiction over conversations on the Al Hada phone. Helped by the NSA, it stakes out the house, tapping the phone, planting bugs, and taking satellite photographs of the visitors coming and going from the house. However, the CIA apparently does not provide the FBI with all the relevant information it is obtaining about Al-Qaeda's plans. For example, the FBI is not informed that Khalid al-Badar and Nawab al-Hazmi make calls to the communications hub in Yemen from the United States between the spring of 2000 and the summer of 2001, while they were inside the United States, unknown to the FBI and the State Department. The FBI also asked the NSA to pass any calls between the communications hub and the United States to the FBI, but the NSA doesn't do this either. Nevertheless, by the summer months of 1999, Khalid bin Atash, a high-ranking al-Qaeda courier, is sent to Yemen to help al-Qaeda leader Abid al-Rahim al-Nashidi obtain explosives to bomb a ship and also to get a U.S. visa so he could travel to the United States to take part in an operation there. This would later be known as the 9-11 planes operation. While in Yemen, Bin Atash is arrested by Yemeni authorities. Bin Laden later finds out about the arrest as is concerned that Bin Atash might reveal the ship bombing operation and the U.S. operations while under interrogation. Bin Laden contacts a Yemeni official and makes a deal offering not to attack Yemen if the Yemeni government does not confront him and releases Benatash during the summer of 1999. Both sides agree to the deal, and Benatash returns to Afghanistan without revealing either plot. There is other evidence that Yemeni officials will help al-Nashiri as a ship attack plot eventually targets the USS Cole while stationed in Yemen. According to intelligence officials in late 1999, Khalid al-Midar tells another operative that al-Qaeda is planning a ship bombing attack. The United States will learn this from a detainee interviewed in December of 2001. This detainee will later be known as Abu Zubaydah. The detainee will say that al-Midar informed him that al-Qaeda operative Abd al-Raham al-Nashiri was the plot's originator. Al-Nashiri discussed the ship bombing attack in a telephone call made, made in late 1998, known to the NSA. The call was placed to the Al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen, in which the NSA is monitoring. On January 3rd of 2000, an Al-Qaeda attack on the USS Sullivan's in Yemen hardens, uh, harbor, Aden, fails when the boat filled with explosives sinks. This is one of a series of failed Al-Qaeda attacks planned to take place around the turn of the millennium between December 31st of 1999 and January 1st of 2000. Two days later, the NSA and CIA are closely monitoring a high-level meeting of a dozen of Bin Laden's trusted followers in the city of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. The CIA and FBI became aware of this meeting through a phone call placed to the Yemen hub in late December of 1999 
heard by the NSA. The call records Khalid al-Midar and someone named Khalad at this meeting between the two men at the phone. During the meeting in Kuala Lumpur, notable attendees, which are recorded by Malaysian authorities on behalf of the CIA, are Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ridwan Ismuddin, also known as Hambali, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Khalid al-Midar, Nawab al-Hazmi, Zacharias Musawi, Salim al-Hazmi, Walid bin Atash, Abid al-Rahim al-Nashiri, and Fahad al-Kuso. It is alleged that the 9-11 planes operation and the USS coal bombing are discussed here as Malaysian authorities take photos of who arrives at the meeting and send this information to the bin Laden issue station run by CIA. These photographs are never shared with any agency other than CIA. A series of calls by Al-Qaeda operatives, some of whom are under surveillance by CIA and the Malaysian Special Branch at this time, links three sites involved in the bombing of the USS Cole. Even though the CIA is aware of these calls, as well as the NSA, it would later say it is unable to find the hijackers in Bangkok when they leave the meeting, the location of one of the coal sites. However, the NSA hasn't lost track. On January 8th of 2000, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar, plus al-Qaeda leader Khalid bin Atash, fly from Malaysia to Thailand together, sitting next to each other on the plane. It is alleged by Malaysian intelligence, and which they soon informed the CIA, that al-Midar was on this flight, sitting next to someone with the last name of al-Hazmi and someone with the name of Salah Saeed Mohammed bin Yusuf, which is an alias for Wali bin Atash, and in fact is the same alias he used when applying for a U.S. visa in 1999. Two months later, the CIA learns that several days later, Nawaf al-Hazmi flew from Thailand to the U.S., which means he had to have a U.S. visa. The CIA claims to have lost them, yet the NSA continues to monitor Nawaf al-Hazmi's cell phone even when he is inside the United States in the month of January of 2000, all without the knowledge of the FBI or State Department. Meanwhile, CIA has photographs of the passports and U.S. visas of Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. This information is later found out by the FBI, but they are not given authorization to share that with the FBI headquarters in the United States. By April of 2000, Yemeni's interior minister, Hussein Arab, issues a letter to al-Qaeda commander Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri instructing Yemeni authorities to give safe passage to al-Nashiri and three bodyguards without being searched or even intercepted. The later states, quote, all security forces are instructed to cooperate with him and facilitate his mission, end quote. Al-Nashiri's mission turns out to be the attack on the USS Cole. By the summer of 2000, intelligence warnings are picking up, and some affiliates known to the intelligence community, even informants working with U.S. intelligence, warned U.S. officials 
that Osama bin Laden is preparing to attack the United States abroad. One such warning would come from an Egyptian informant who warns U.S. intelligence that an al-Qaeda will, will attack U.S. American warships abroad. The FBI also notices increased telephone activity by al-Qaeda in Yemen around the same time. John O'Neill, the New York City FBI agent counterterrorism squad leader, is leading the charge in obtaining information relating to bin Laden and al-Qaeda. However, he has met with the wall regarding intelligence sharing between CIA and FBI, even while the FBI is working with CIA analysts at the bin Laden issue station. On September 15, 2000, according to U.S. officials, Ramzi bin al-Sheib makes two trips to Yemen's capital of Sana'a and will later be said to play a role in the attack. Although bin al-Sheib is never named as a certain participant in the operation, he does travel to Yemen from Germany a month before the attack and again one day before the bombing takes place. A videotaped message featuring bin Laden calling for more attacks on the U.S. is aired on Al Jazeera. The video ends with al-Qaeda leader Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri saying, quote, enough of words. It is time to take action against this iniquitous and faithless force, the United States, which has spread troops throughout Egypt, Yemen, and Saudi Arabia, end quote. This is the same broadcast Al Jazeera featured Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri, and Ahmed Rafai Taha, head of the Gamma Islamia group, formerly led by the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman on September 21st of 2000. In the video, which was filmed in Afghanistan several months earlier, bin Laden had promised to do all we can to liberate Abdul Rahman from his imprisonment in the U.S. Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri would also say in the video that he is taking business to the United States about helping to free Abdul Rahman. July of 2001, the FBI will overhear an Arabic translator tell the blind sheikh that the October 2000 bombing of the Yossos Gol was done for him so he could be released. The translator is also heard saying that if he is not released, the bombings, the bombers, are prepared to execute another operation. At around the same time, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer related claimed that Captain Scott Billpot, leader of a defense intelligence agency monitoring terrorist operations codenamed Able Danger, a metadating mining program, and head of the Special Operations Command, General Peter Shoemaker, who is briefed from Philpot that Able Danger had uncovered information of increased Al-Qaeda activity in Aden Harbor, Yemen. Schaefer plus two other officials familiar with Able Danger, later tell the New York Post that this warning was gleaned through a search of bin Laden's business ties in Yemen. Schaefer will later recall, quote, Yemen was elevated by Able Danger to be one of the three top hotspots for al-Qaeda in the entire world, end quote. Schaefer later claims that Philpott tells the 9-11 Commission about this warning in 2004 to show that Able Danger could have had a significant impact, but the commission's findings will fail to mention the warning or, in fact, anything else 
about Abel Danger at all. In the morning hours of October 12th of 2000, Commander Kirk Lippold docked in Aden Harbor for a routine fuel stop. A small fiberglass boat carrying C-4 explosives and two suicide bombers approached the port side of the destroyer and exploded. In the aftermath of the attack, 17 U.S. sailors ended up being killed with 37 injured. The Al-Qaeda operatives had used about 700 pounds of C-4 explosives. Khalid al-Midar leaves shortly after the attack together with Khaled bin Atash. Bin Atash is quickly identified as one of the masterminds of the operation. Al-Midar would subsequently be accused of participating in the operation by the prime ministers of Yemen and Great Britain. The USS attack on the coal was a repeat of a failed attempt to bomb the USS Sullivan's of which Al-Midar also had foreknowledge. Al-Midar, who trained with the coal bombers and attended an apparent planning session for the operation, may also be involved in the later ship bombing operation in Singapore, Thailand. Ramzi bin al-Sheib also leaves Yemen around this time and is also suspected of being involved with the bombings. It is also alleged that Al-Qaeda operatives Fahad al-Kuso is supposed to take video of the attack on the USS Cole. However, Al-Qaeda sleeps, Al-Kuso sleeps through his alarm and is not able to set his camera up in time. The bombers call him repeatedly on his cell phone until seconds before the crash, but he is in a taxi when the explosion occurs. He immediately goes into hiding and the camera is later found at his sister's house. Osama bin Laden has specifically asked that the attack be videoed and had allocated funds for this purpose. The CIA would later trace $5,000 sent by bin Laden to the bomber cell in Yemen. After the attacks, U.S. authorities begin the investigation with the FBI leading the way. Still not knowing that the CIA and NSA are still running intelligence operations regarding the Yemen cell. The FBI was convinced that the coal bombers had been tipped off about the arrival of the coal and they wanted to expand the investigation to include a member of the president's own family and a colonel in the Yemeni equivalent of the FBI. There was scant interest on the part of the Yemen authorities to pursuing such leads. After several weeks of the investigation, U.S. authorities learned that al-Qaeda leader Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri was involved in the plot to attack the U.S.'s coal. Investigators find a second safe house used by the bombing team and learned that it was registered to al-Nashiri's under a named variant. Based on information obtained during the investigation of the USS Cole bombing, the FBI asks the CIA for information about al-Qaeda leader Khaled bin Atash and a possible al-Qaeda meeting in Southeast Asia in early of 2000, but the CIA withholds the information. Surviving members of the USS Coal bombing later report that the bombing itself had come under investigation. One of such which Chief Petty Officer Sean Tate would later reminisce in the early morning hours of the bombing itself. Just a you know a routine morning in port. I took myself down to. Uh, 
my shop, which is basically the third deck below the waterline. At that time, you know, Lieutenant came right at the door frame, and uh, I said, LT, you know, hey, I have one more document. I got to do a reprint. And, you know, I was about to hit that enter key. I have no idea if I hit the enter key or not. What I do remember is when I came to, I was smelling JP5. And it took me hours to get just to the second deck from the third deck, which normally takes you maybe 30 seconds up the ladder well. And I finally looked down, and my leg was looking the other way. And Pedersa Sims, the only PC on board, he was there. I don't know what he was doing there, but he was there. And he was like, Sean, you know, what, what, you okay? I said, no, I'm not okay. I said, my leg, it's, it's not right. I said, why don't you pull it straight? You know, because, you know, it shouldn't be that way. And he said, no, man, she said, don't touch it. I said, well, when he's not looking, just grab my pant leg. He said, okay. And as he pulled my leg straight, the pain from my back got relieved. And by that time, Wibbly was being carried over to the helo control tower. He never made it. That's when it came to life for me. That's when I realized that something terrible happened. And I was just there helpless. I couldn't fight the shift. I couldn't help my shift mates. I couldn't do anything. So at that point, I felt as though I had failed rather than, uh, you know, being a survivor at the time never occurred. The State Department would lend the investigation to the press in the hours after the attack. Good afternoon. The uh, latest. These figures are uh, seven dead, uh, 10 missing, and 38 uh, wounded. Uh, we are in the process of moving. Uh, five of the wounded sailors have already been returned to duty. Their wounds were superficial, and they're back, uh, back at work. Uh, the balance of the wounded sailors should be moved to Ramstein um, over the next, uh, the next uh, 12 hours or so. Uh, one plane is underway, and another plane should arrive uh, early tomorrow morning. In terms of the status of the uh, USS Cole itself, she is stable. Um, uh, some power has been restored. She is generating some power, and she has some communications capability through um, uh, satellite uh, communications now. Navy divers have examined her keel, and uh, it appears that her keel uh, is in good shape, but that examination is continuing. Could you tell us something about where you might be getting from? They have uh, helped us uh, with the uh, medical care, and um, second, they have, they're providing a lot of security um, around the port um, uh, in the city of Aden. By late October of 2000, Fahad al-Kuso was interrogated by authorities in Yemen. FBI agent Ali Soufan from the New York City office was able to use that information to discover the identity of one of the USS Cole bombing masterminds, Khalid Benatash. In early December, while most FBI investigators are having to leave Yemen, Soufan is given a chance to interrogate Fahad al-Kuso directly. Soufan gets al-Kuso to admit they have met with Binatash and one of the cold suicide bombers in Bangkok, Thailand in January of 2000. Kuso admits he gave Atash 
and not the $5,000 for medical expenses that Alcuso had claimed when talking to the Yemenis the month before. Alcuso says they stayed in the Washington Hotel in Bangkok, so Sufan checks telephone records to verify his account. Sufan finds records of phone calls between the hotel and Alcuso's house in Yemen. They also find calls to both places from a payphone in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. The phone happens to be directly outside the condominium where the Al-Qaeda summit was taking place a few days before Alcuso went to Bangkok. Sufan asks the CIA for informing about Binatash, but the CIA wrongly claims it knows nothing and doesn't even tell Sufan of the Malaysia summit that it had closely monitored and had been given by Malaysian authorities of photographs of everyone involved. Because the CIA thinks Khalid al-Midar and al-Qaeda leader Khaled bin Atash are in the same place at the same time in Bangkok, Thailand, for a meeting with Fahad al-Khuso, and possibly because of the similarity between al-Midar's first name and Khalad, some officers apparently theorized that bin Atash and al-Midar are the same person. However, the FBI is not informed of this. In order to confirm or refute this theory, the CIA station in Islamabad, Pakistan, asks for surveillance photos of the Al-Qaeda summit that Al-Midar attended, intending to show the photos to a source who knows that Benatash has previously identified him in another photograph. However, there was no record of this theory being communicated to the FBI even though the CIA knows Benatash was involved with the cold bombing and that the FBI is also investigating him. More importantly, Signals Intelligence by NSA were so secretly guarded from their adversaries in the intelligence community that it defies belief that the bombing could even be successful without prior knowledge by the agency. Calls between the hub and an Al-Qaeda cell in Ireland that seems to have a connection to the cold bombing are intercepted during part of this period in September and October of 2000. It is unclear why the information does not allow the NSA to thwart the plot despite the scope of the monitoring. That NSA director, Michael Hayden, would later claim that the NSA had no idea about the bombing clear privacy previous to the attacks. This would, of course, come under close scrutiny after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks when former senior executive Thomas Drake, years later, would later say of the following. We had failed the country. We had failed to keep Americans out of harm's way. However, that was not the case with much of the leadership. The leadership was really in denial. I would hear the following phrase, which I think one person in particular probably had regrets ever saying more publicly, that 9-11 was a gift NSA. <laughs> a gift. It was really an interesting bifurcation. A very secret organization knowing they had, that we were part of a systemic failure called 9-11. I will also tell you 9-11 could have been prevented. One of the things that's not well publicly known is that part of my whistleblowing involved being called as a material witness in the short months after 9-11 
for two 9-11 congressional investigations in which I gave highly classified information, operational intelligence, information that NSA had never shared or information it did not know it had that was never shared, that if it had been shared and properly acted upon, probably would have stopped 9-11 alone, separate from any other intelligence agency or department. So, what did the NSA hear on those phones? What did they hear in the Yemen hub in Sana Yemen? What was talked about on the satellite phones used by Al-Qaeda operatives? These are the questions that we need answers to. And unless this information is declassified, protected by the United States federal government in which this information is classified under state secrets, national security. We will never know if the NSA had known about this attack at all in which it could have prevented the unneedless deaths of 17 U.S. American sailors. Regardless, the intelligence community failed us time and time again. Were the 9-11 attacks also discussed on these phones? Much like the USS Cole bombing, the 1998 U.S. Embassy bombings? Were these operations talked about on this phone in Yemen? And during that Malaysia meeting in Kuala Lumpur, January 5th of 2000, monitored by the CIA, we won't know until we start asking the right questions. That is all for this episode of the Dr. Dow. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald.